You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. As you're finding John chapter 13, I wanted to share, I do not keep up with the lives of the royalty of England. Some of you may. I know a few months ago there was a big wedding, uh, and a lady named Meghan Markle, who's from America, married uh, Prince Harry. And there's a big... uh, Big to-do on the internet a couple weeks ago with Meghan Markle. Uh, Some of you may have seen this. Some of you probably don't care, and I don't blame you for this. But a big thing happened where she was getting out of her vehicle. She had been driven to, I think it was like to an art gallery, an art show or something. And uh, one of the people who had driven her there came around to her door, opened it for her so she could get out. She is now called the Duchess of Sussex. So she's part of the royal family. So they don't open and close their own door. Uh, they had somebody come and do that for her, open the car door, and she gets out and kind of nonchalantly, uh, because for all of her life she has shut her own doors, uh, turns around and kind of shuts the door to the car, and people just went bonkers about this. Like, they, some people are like, yeah, you go, girl, like, uh, woman power, like, assert your independence, like, you don't need a man to, to shut that door. Then other people were, like, really up in arms because this was, like, a centuries-old no-no, a, a tradition that even back when there was probably carriages and certainly when there's been cars that the royal family don't do that. that that's something that people like them don't do, uh, that it's beneath them in a sense, although they might not say that. Uh, and so there was all this mixed reaction, and I think she didn't probably even mean to cause the, the, the fight that ensued about this, and whether she should or shouldn't, she just kind of uh, non-consciously went to shut her door, but she stirred and, and ruffled feathers because she was bucking against cultural norms and what certain people do and don't do. Uh, and she may have done that accidentally, kind of passively, not even meant to. But the passage we're going to see today, uh, we're, we're going to read John 13, 1 through 20. We're going to see Jesus very much on purpose trying to buck societal norms, trying to, to push the envelope to do something that people in that room and people maybe even to our day would think, people like you don't do things like that. Uh, and he, we're going to see that he washes the disciples' feet. It's a famous story. It's a well-known story, but it has much, I think, that God can teach us, can instruct us, even though we weren't there having our feet washed. I think as we read about this and what took place and why Jesus did it, I think that we have much that we can learn ourselves. And so as we come to John 13, we're at a pivotal point in the book of John. We've been going through it for many, many months now, and we're a bit over halfway. But as how John laid out this book, it seems almost, and I mentioned this last week, like there's two books within a book. There's the first book of chapters 1 through 12 that some people call the book of signs. It's where Jesus had done sign upon sign upon sign to try to demonstrate who he was, why he'd come, things like that. But this passage shifts into what people think of as a second book that they may call the book of glory. This is the book that was going to culminate in Jesus being glorified in an unexpected way. That he's going to be lifted up on a cross and laid in a tomb 
And he's going to eventually, after the book of John, ascend back into heaven. And so this is called the book of glory, many people call it, that we're about to start today. And this is a shift also from a very public ministry that Jesus had had for many years, for a few years at least, where he'd been doing signs and teachings out in public. But John chapter 13 switches to where it's a more private setting now. We're going to see he's just with his disciples just probably with 12 of them, maybe a few people accompanying along, but just with this very small group. And the next numerous chapters are going to cover one night of conversation and action between them. And it seems like it's even the very night before Jesus is arrested and crucified. So John unpacks a lot for us that we're going to start reading about even today that happened that night with his disciples. So I'm going to read this whole passage, and then we'll walk back through it. We'll read the first 20 verses of John chapter 13. So follow along with me in your copy of the Word of God. So John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records this for us, and he would have been an eyewitness to this. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He lay aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. But Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of God, and may the Lord bless the preaching of it. 
This is a wonderful, wonderful story that many of you are probably familiar with. It's one of the more common accounts if we grew up in church that we learn about as kids. Um, But I I think that there is much that we maybe miss in this, or sometimes we think of it too simplistically. And Jesus is wanting to accomplish many things, even when he did this with his disciples. And I think the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish many things in us as people who get to read about it and people who get to be instructed by the words and by the example of Jesus. And if I have to summarize the main point that I see from this passage, I think John wanted even to convey to us who would read it, I would say it this way, is to let humility be a mark of your relationship, both with Christ and with fellow Christians. To let humility be a mark of your relationship, both with Christ himself and with fellow Christians. And I think you see both of those very much on display here. And so to start with, I want to make sure we understand what's going on here, what is happening in this room. Uh, some, maybe a frame, if you want to think of, that we're going to paint a picture within, what the frame of what's going on here. And go back to the beginning, the first couple verses of what we read. John records for us that this is before the Feast of the Passover. And without getting into too much detail, I would simply say that as best as I can tell, this, what we're reading about even in the next several chapters, is what has come to be called the Last Supper. It's part of what happened the night before Jesus was about to be arrested and the the day before he was about to be crucified. It all happened during and around this time of Passover, which was an expanded feast, a time of eight days at least, if not more, with travel and all these things. And Jesus is having a meal uh, with his disciples. You see that even down in verse 4, that he rose from supper to do this, to wash their feet. And so this is in the context of them having eaten a meal together. And John, interestingly, is the only gospel writer who records this for us. Matthew, Mark, Luke didn't even touch this, did not mention this about washing the feet, but John was there, and he records for us that this was one of the things that Jesus did. And uh, it's, it's important, it's significant. I'm grateful that John recorded it for us. The Holy Spirit certainly knew what he was doing, getting this story in here and to us. But note that John he says there's a few things Jesus knows as this is about to happen. Did you catch that the first couple of verses? John says there's a few things Jesus enters into this night, enters into this even very act of washing feet that Jesus knows that make this even more mind-boggling that that's what he's doing. Uh, so if you look down, for example, in verses 1 and in verse 3, John says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart. That he says it a little bit different ways, but that he had come from God, he'd been sent into the world, and he was about to go back to God. John says Jesus knew that. And that sounds nice, but John is, is talking about, and you know this, I think, the means by which he goes back to God is through death. It's through death and then the resurrection and the ascension back to God the Father. And so Jesus knows that that is about to happen. We've already seen that a few times in John. Jesus knows it's coming. Jesus knows now it's imminent. Probably if the timing is right and I'm accurate, within 24 hours of this, Jesus is going to be dead and laid in a tomb. So that's how close in time you're talking about. Jesus knew that his time had come. And yet he spends this last night with a group of 12 
fishermen and tax collectors and uh, just, I mean, ragamuffin type of people. That's who he's spending his last night with before his death. That is confounding to me. If I had one night to live, I don't know what I would do, but one lower on the list would have been my initial instinct to do what Jesus did, to spend it teaching people and washing feet and things like that. that but this is where Jesus' heart is. He wants to get his disciples ready for his death and for life even beyond the grave and after he is raised from the dead. And Jesus, note this, he says in verse 3 that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Did you catch that? Jesus knew that, that he was not just some random teacher, not just some rabbi. He knew that he was being given, in some sense had already been given, all authority over all things. Over the entirety of the universe, he had been given all authority. All, all things had been given into his hands. Yet he's about, even knowing that, he's about to, to take off the outer parts of his robe and walk, with those same hands wash the dirty feet of these guys who are going to scatter from him in just a few hours. He is the, the, the Jesus who is omnipotent. That's why I call this the omnipotent foot washer. This, this is mind-boggling that all authority been given to him, and yet he's going to stoop to wash dirty, dusty feet of his friends. It, it is incomprehensible to me that he would do this. And I think that's why Peter responded the way he did initially. Why would you do this? This idea of an omnipotent foot washer, I was thinking, I am not a big superhero person. I don't know all this Marvel and DC comics and who's who and what, but I do know our human inclination, at least in recent days and generations, has been to really love a good superhero. Like someone who has these powers, these abilities that, that no other people have. They have these, these strengths and powers and we, we are impressed when they use those to serve other people. When, when they use that strength, when they use that ability the, or those abilities that they have to serve other people, to protect Gotham or whatever. I know Batman might not be a superhero. That's a whole debate. Uh, but they, we, 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 we are drawn to superheroes who use their power, their position to serve. But Jesus, those are fictional people. Fictional men and women, and even in fiction world, they don't use it to serve their enemies. They don't use their powers and, and submit to, to help people and serve people who do wrong against them. They use it to protect innocent people or bystanders. But Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and is going to stoop and wash the feet of men who are going to sin against him and run away from him in a matter of hours. The omnipotent creator of the universe who's given all things is going to stoop and wash the feet of these men. Even of Judas, who, who he says down in verse 11, another thing that he knows is that Judas is going to betray him. Yet even Judas is among that circle that are around that table that Jesus washes his feet, presumably, as well. So we see in this text, even before Jesus starts to speak, because he's about to speak a bunch, like the next numerous chapters. You, if you have a red-letter Bible, you flip through the next several chapters up uh, through chapters uh, 14, 15, 16, and so on. Jesus is going to talk a lot. John's going to record a lot that Jesus has to say, and he even says many things here. But before he says something here, John records him doing something, uh, of washing the feet. And so first thing we see uh, with, with Jesus' act of washing feet is that he was trying to provide for his disciples and for us a picture of cleansing. 
a picture of spiritual cleansing that needed to take place in these men's lives and in all of our lives, that we are all in need of cleansing. And Jesus is trying to paint a picture of that very vividly for them. If you follow along in what actually happened, if you start in verse 4, this is what the mechanics of what happened in the room. This is what Jesus actually did. John was there. He records for us that Jesus, it doesn't even record that he's saying anything. He rose from supper then he laid aside his outer garment, so they would have had different layers of clothing. And he takes out off, like a servant would, the outer garment, uh, the layer of garment, takes that aside, and he picks up a towel, probably a longer towel, because he wraps it around his waist, John records. And I can see him thinking back into, okay, what did Jesus do that night? As he's recording it, it's seared in his mind. And Jesus wraps his towel around his waist, and then he goes and gets water. And he goes and he pours water into this basin. We don't know all the details of that, but that this basin of water. And he begins to wash their feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is seared in John's mind very vividly. And this would have been a cultural no-no. This would have been something that would have been unheard of. This was a task that, that servants would normally do. That the, in the household that they would have been in, that the lowliest person societally would have done. And Jesus does it himself. Jesus stoops to that level, even amongst those who call him teacher and Lord. He goes to them and takes off their sandals, presumably, and wipes down their feet. And that's a foreign concept in our world. We maybe think feet are gross. There's a real phobia called potophobia I learned about this week, like fear of feet. Uh, th- but their, their feet would have been very different from ours. Ours are usually covered. Uh, they may uh, not be dirty. They have their own issues. But their feet would have been dirty and dusty. And what, They probably were walking on fairly clean roads in and around Jerusalem, but still uh, just... In society, this idea of washing feet would have been an immense act of humility, one that was usually not chosen. It was something that was forced upon a person. It was what their role and lot was in life. And Jesus says, I will do that for you. Like, I will throw aside cultural connotations and thoughts about who should do what, and I will stoop and I will wash each and every one of your dirty feet. We don't know who he started with or how he would have proceeded around the circle, but it seems like he had begun washing some of the disciples' feet. And then when he comes to Peter, who tends to overspeak, he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And so he's just, we think of that as being this awful thing. Like, how could Peter say that? And what, what arrogance that he has to say that? But I think he was just reflecting what societal norms would have been. Like, no, if anybody's going to wash anybody's feet here, Jesus, I should wash your feet. Or none of us should wash anybody's feet. But, but you washing my feet and our feet, no. Like, that, that is not right. And Jesus tells him, very understandably, that you don't get it. Like, you don't understand what I'm trying to do. That's what he says. What I'm doing now, you don't understand. But afterward, you will. And so he knows Peter's not going to totally get this of why he's doing it. But as he continues, Peter objects even further. In verses 8 and uh, following, Peter says to him, You shall never wash my feet. So it's like Peter's not content with Jesus saying, No, let me do this. He, he's really digging in and saying, No, like you will not wash my feet. Like that, that is not appropriate. That's not how this relationship should work, Jesus. Like where you wash me. Like I should wash you. 
You know, Jesus, his response sheds some light on what he's trying to show, what he's trying to picture in doing this. And after Peter has said, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus says this to him. He says, and Jesus expands it beyond just feet and dirt now, doesn't he? He says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And he's saying like this, I'm talking about, it's like he's saying, I'm talking about something bigger than just your feet and my hands and this water and the dirt and dust and whatever else is on your feet. I am talking about a washing that you need and that only I can give to you. And if you don't receive that, you have no share with me. Like that, what I'm doing with your feet here is just a picture of that cleansing, of that cleaning that you need to have, Peter. And I think it started to click in Peter's mind that that's what was happening because really quickly he swings the, out to the opposite side of the pendulum, doesn't he? Where Peter in verse 9 says, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And so it's like Peter's starting to get, okay, like Jesus is talking about cleansing I need spiritually. And he's like, I want all of that. Like, give that to me, Jesus. Like, if this is symbolizing that, like, dump it on my head, like, wash every part of me. And, and there, there's a, a goodness in his response, and there's a, a humility in a sense of his response. And Jesus, though, he, he makes an important distinction, doesn't he? When Peter says that, like, well, wash me, like, wash me entirely, how Jesus responds is very interesting. Jesus says to him, the one who's bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. That's what he's saying to them, like, all except Judas. He's saying... In a sense, you're already clean, like in that spiritual sense, like it, that, that you are forgiven because you've put your trust in me. You've believed in me. He's saying, matter of fact, you are, he even says, completely clean. And so he's saying that that cleansing that is so deeply needed for their sin that he's already provided for them. He, it, it's as if he knows because he's about to die upon the cross for those sins. It's like money in the bank already, that their sins are already dealt with. They've already been laid upon him, upon the cross. Uh, and he knows it's coming. He's made them clean already, spiritually speaking. But he says, nonetheless, he says that when somebody's been made clean spiritually, he's saying there's still a different sense in which they need to be made clean again and again and again. Because even though their body may be clean, they may be truly, completely clean spiritually, their feet still get dirty. And that's what he's trying to picture in that room with them, is that you've been made clean spiritually already, but I'm going to continue to clean your feet. I'm going to continue to, to take care of the, the sin that comes up in your life and the, 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 the willful sin, the choices that you make against me. I'm going to continue to clean you over and over and over again. And he, it's like he's drawing a distinction between cleansing that happens once for all that we call being justified in the sight of God and then cleansing that happens day by day, month by month, year by year in our life that, is, that we call being sanctified by God. And it's like he's saying, I provide both of those for you. Like, I will make you clean. What I'm about to do upon the cross can wipe all of your sin, all your guilt away once for all. Like, with my Father, you will be made clean. You will be made righteous. You will have no sin on your record anymore. But he's acknowledging, and they're about to live it out in the next several hours, that you're going to continue to have sin that you commit. 
You're going to continue to have disobedience against me in ways that you rebel against me. And I want you to know, even then, I'm going to continue to help clean you up in that sense. I'm going to help you learn to obey. I'm going to help you learn to stop jumping in the mud puddles and stop going back to those dirty pathways. I'm going to help you and, and teach you to walk in a way of cleanliness. I was trying to think of an illustration, to, and all illustrations are limited to some degree, but I was thinking we went up to St. Joe, Michigan for a little miniature vacation earlier this summer, and uh, I do not like going to beaches in general, uh, but we got into the water, and you'll see why I don't like beaches. We get into the water, enjoy the water. It was a little bit cold, so we didn't go totally in like we normally would. Uh, but then when we come back out of the water, and so we're like clean in a sense, right? What happens right when you start stepping back onto the sand? Your feet get dirty, right? You could have, like, got all lathered up if you wanted to out in Lake Michigan, got all totally clean. And as soon as you step back out onto the sand, the sand sticks to your feet. And I remember thinking, what a wonderful invention, because right up by the bathrooms, uh, but, and this is a beach of the oceans, too, I know, but at the, at the bathroom, up by the bathrooms, there's these little spigots and, like, these little sprayers that you can spray off your feet, and I was like, that is a wonderful invention, thank God for whoever thought of that, because I was, in a sense, totally clean when I was in the water, but now, even just in my walk out here, I've gotten dirty again, and I need, in a lesser sense, to be made clean again, and I can have that provided and can get back in my car and not get sand everywhere. And that's just, that was just like a little picture to me as I was thinking about this. Jesus saying, I can provide total cleansing for you, but I can provide daily cleansing in a different sense of sanctifying you. It made me think in a sense, and this is a limited analogy, but Jesus is like that lake and like that spigot. Like that he can make you totally clean once for all, remove your sin forever, but then he can actually spray you off and clean off the dirt that remains in your life and help you become more holy even in how you live. And all that to say, this was that first part of my main point, is to, we need to let humility mark our relationship with Christ. We need to be people who are humble in our relationship to him. There's this temptation in us as human beings, whether we've grown up in the church or not, there's this temptation to believe that we don't need to be washed by Christ. That, that we are clean. We are good. We, we do our best. And we, we may not say these exact words, but we may, like Peter, say, you shall never wash me. Like either I don't need it or I don't want it. And we, we reject Christ and say, I don't need that washing or I don't even think that you can offer it to me. And there's this pride that wells up within us of acting like we don't need the cleansing that Jesus offers for our sin. And if Peter had trouble with Jesus washing his feet, like that stooping of humility, what was he going to think when Jesus was on the cross? Do you think it's gross to wash feet? Like Jesus was about to be whipped and have a crown of thorn put on his head, and he was going to be mocked and made fun of and have the wrath of God put upon him, not just dirt on his hands. And if Peter would not receive that cleaning of his feet, how would he accept the work, the far uglier work that Christ was going to have to do upon the cross? And it, it could feel humble for him. It could feel humble for us to say, I don't need that cleansing. Like, you should never wash me, Jesus. That can feel immensely humble. Like, that it's a godly thing to do. But Christ says to Peter, and he says to us, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part with me. Like, that is where you start with me, is your need to be washed and my provision of that to you. Like, you don't come to me uh, clean already. You come to me filthy and dirty, and I clean you. 
And we need to come to Christ that way and acknowledge that, that, that I need your cleansing and you can provide it for me. But we also need, when it comes to that, that secondary cleansing, that being sanctified, that work that, of cleansing that Jesus does to us, we can often slip into this prideful state where we think that, well, Christ gained me that ultimate forgiveness, the, the cleansing of my soul. But when it comes to the practicalities of life, that's just up to me. Like, I need to clean myself up. I need to just get my act together and pull myself up by these bootstraps and, and be hard on myself and be disciplined enough. And we lose sight that even the cleansing that continues in our life is a work of Christ. It's Him working in you. It's Him cleansing that, those areas of sin that are in your life, making you clean. We need to be people who are humble in that sense towards Christ as well, who keep short accounts with him, who don't let the the dirt build up on our feet and on our our hands and all over us and never come to him. We need to bring those to him humbly and acknowledge where we have failed, confess the sins that we've lived even that day uh, to him and ask him for cleansing, ask him for help to cleanse us once again, to help us to obey, to help us to follow him in obedience and trust, and he will. So we need to be humble in our relating to Christ. And Jesus provided a picture of that cleansing that he would provide for his people. But the second part of this text, Jesus, uh, when he kind of put, he puts back on his outer garments and he sits down and it's like he's going to process this with them, what he did. We're going to see that he's, instead of just talking about what he did as a painting, a picture of cleansing, he's going to say what he just did is an example to them of service. Like, he, he moves beyond just the, like, metaphor of what it was referring to and starts talking about the actual act itself. Like, I actually stooped down and washed your nasty feet. Now that is an example to you of how you're to live with each other. I'm living as an example to you. And so if you look here in verses 12 and following, it says he put um, his outer garments back on, resumed his place, and asked them rhetorically, because he doesn't even let them answer, He says, do you understand what I've done to you? And then he proceeds to explain. In a few different ways, he he acknowledges, you know what, Peter and other guys that are in the room, I get that that was hard for you. Like uh, our societal norms, like you call me Lord and teacher, teacher and Lord, and you're right, I am. Like he's acknowledging that that's what was driving Peter's nervousness is you're my teacher And on top of that, you are my Lord. Like, you are my master. Not just that I learn from, but that I owe all things to and that I follow completely. And Jesus is saying that is true. Like, that is right. Uh, There's a good impulse within you uh, in that way. But then he he proceeds because he, he says that if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. And then he says just the same thing in different ways. He says, I've given to you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And then he makes this general analogy that we're used to where he says, you know, a servant's not greater than his master or a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And he's appealing to just a normal human uh, awareness that we have. When I'm being taught by someone, I don't assume that, like, I go beyond them or, like, that my skills supersede theirs or that I'm allowed to do things that they don't or that when they actually do something, that I have the option to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going there. Like, I, I don't need to do that. Like, that's cool for you. Uh, you're special. You're whatever. But I don't, I'm not going there. I don't need to do that. Jesus is saying that when we have 
a master and we're the servant. We seek to live as he lived. When we have a teacher that we're seeking to follow, we do as he does. And if he washes feet, if he stoops to that level, an act of, of service that would have been unmatched in their day, if he stoops to that, he says, you ought to follow suit. Like You ought to serve. You ought to humble yourself. It's like if you're, I mean, if you work at a restaurant or somewhere and your boss cleans the toilet or scrubs the floors, how can you, as someone who they are supervising, when they ask you to do that, say, you know what, that's above my pay grade. Like when, when you see the Lord of the universe, the one who's been given all things into his hands, using those hands to stoop and wash feet, to humbly serve, to do something that would have been perceived as nasty to them, they are called to do the same, to follow suit, and we are as well. And so we are not just to let humility mark our relationship with Christ, but we're to let humility mark our relationship with fellow Christians as well. There's this pride that wells up in us, not just when we're relating to Christ, but even when we relate to our fellow human beings, isn't there? That we tend to think that there's certain things I'm willing to do and certain things I'm not willing to do. There's two categories. Like, I'll, I'll, or then there's a line between them. I'll go up to this line. I'll stretch myself a little bit when it comes to serving you and being willing to humble myself and do things that might be hard for me or feel kind of unsettling to me or gross to me. But this area off limits. I will not do that. And Christ is saying there is no area off limits. Like There is no line you can draw for fellow Christians to say, I will go this far in serving you and no further. He, he's trying to obliterate that pride. And he, he's speaking about more than just actually washing feet. Okay, I want to acknowledge that. There's some churches and traditions within Christianity that read passages like this, and very literally, when Jesus says that we're to follow his example and we're to wash one another's feet, that they embed that into their life as a church. And that's not wrong to do. Uh, it could be a wonderful practice to do, because I think even though it's kind of lost in our society of having dusty, dirty feet with God knows what on them that we're washing. Even without that, there's still an act of humility that can come in washing each other's feet. But Jesus, I think, is talking about something beyond just literal foot washing. He, he's speaking, using that as an example to talk about a way of life, a way of life that is willing to humble ourselves in service of fellow Christians. There, there's many ways that we can try to do this. I was trying to think about this this week and even inquiring with some of you about ways that you would think of washing feet in today's world. What are ways that we could humble ourselves to serve one another? What are examples of how we could do that? And some that either you all share with me or that I thought of uh, on my own were things like this, like caring for people who are sick, for example. Like that, that's a, that is a, a case where we may think that, you know what, I'm going to get sick if I go and take care of that person. Like, I'm going to get their germs, I'm going to get their whatever, it's going to get shared to me, and so I'm not willing to go over to their house to spend time with them or to take them a meal. It could be caring for either the very uh, old among us or the very young among us. Like some of us have this wrong-headed belief that when it comes to like changing diapers or something like that, like that is beneath me. And like my wife could do that or whoever can do that. And we refuse to quite literally get our hands dirty in very trivial tasks to serve a fellow human being. And that is wrong of us. 
Like there, there's nothing that should be, there's no line to draw of what we think of as gross or the elderly that are among us. Sometimes we, people sometimes to our shame feel weird to go talk with people who are older than us or to go to a nursing home or to go spend time with a person whose life is getting towards the end. And when, when that is, becomes a cumulative uh, sentiment that we all hold individually, then guess what? That person doesn't get cared for. And we outsource it to, to places like Grace Village and we pay for people to care for people that we should be caring for. We, we can do things. We can, ought to, in washing each other's feet, we can proactively, we ought to proactively be looking for ways that we can minister to people that they would never ask for themselves. Uh, things that, that they maybe feel would be below what someone else would be willing to do, like cleaning their house when they've had an immensely stressful time and they've had sickness or been in the hospital, things like that. Or providing meals for them or coming over to their house to spend time with them when they know that their house is a train wreck right now. Like we need to be willing to enter in quite literally sometime into people's messes, but be willing to stretch ourselves beyond what feels natural and okay and comfortable to us and to go into places where we feel uncomfortable, where even maybe the other person feels uncomfortable. Even just this morning, I was talking to one of the members of our church, and it encouraged my soul. He had told me about this before, but he was relaying in a different setting about how he had a neighbor that lived next to him. And this was a guy, as he started to talk to him, wanted nothing to do with him and would, would not listen to him, like kept saying, I don't want you to talk to me. But he kept seeking to talk to him, and, and they would eventually he let him come into his house and they would watch Walker, Texas Ranger, this show that uh, they would spend time with, and they would build this relationship, and this man's health was slowly deteriorating to where he needed even help physically being cared for and even washed at times, things like that, that many people would have seen the exit at that point and, and found somebody else to do it or care for him. But this man, a member of our church, did that for him. Like, uh, he was willing to serve him, to care for him, to, to show love in a very tangible, what many people might think of as a dirty or gross way. He was willing to show love to him, and that man slowly started listening more to him and slowly started being more inclined to hear him. And even on his deathbed, he was able to share the gospel with him. And as best he can tell, he's squeezing his hand in response, saying, I want to trust in the same Savior that you did, like that led you to care for me. Like humility and humble service speaks to people. It, it gets us inroads, humanly speaking, with people that would have never listened to us. But I want to note here that this, and I wish I had more time to share this, this love, this selfless love should first and foremost, I think Jesus said this, be directed to fellow Christians. Did you catch that? Whose feet does he say to wash? He says one another's feet, right? And he didn't say this out in his public ministry. He says this in the privacy of this room with his followers, with his disciples, and says, wash each other's feet, serve each other, be willing to do hard things and have hard conversations and enter into ugly spaces and places with people without rejecting them as my followers, as my fellow followers do that for each other. And so we ought to be people who are seeking to serve fellow Christians, like who have eyes out first even and foremost, not to the neglect of the world, but look around our church body. Look around our life group if you're in one. When somebody's sick, do you care for them? 
Do you call them? Do you, do you go over and help them with things around their house? When there's somebody in our church who's elderly or shut in or needs their leaves rigged, do we take initiative in the next couple weeks even to go do that for them and to seek out opportunities to do that for them? We ought to be people who are washing each other's feet. There should be humility that marks us as fellow Christians in relating to each other. And at the risk of stating the obvious, I want to point out from this text that we are to be people who actually do this. Okay? Not just think about it, not just say, yes, it is a wonderful thing, but we are people who actually do this. Verse 17, Jesus said this, not me. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. All of us love the idea of being humble. Like, all of us agree that, yes, selfless service is the way of Christ. Like, we're, we're called to do that. But few of us actually seek proactively to do it and stretch ourselves into new territories of doing it. To say, I want to find ways. I want to go look for ways to serve my fellow Christians, to find inroads of ways that I can serve them, ways that I can help them, be of assistance to them, even in ways that they may not want or long for at first, but Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is not just our teacher, he's our Lord, this passage says. He is the one we are to follow with our lives and how we actually make decisions and spend our time and give our energies. Blessed are you if you do them. As a church, we're increasingly wanting to use a few phrases to to talk about our life together. Three simple things that as followers of Christ together we're supposed to do. We are to worship together Sunday by Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. To worship together. To to gather together every Sunday to, to praise the Lord. We're to be involved in community with each other. Ideally in life groups, but potentially in other groups as well. We're to be in community, caring for one another and and sharing life with each other, opening the word with each other, praying for each other. But the third category that we're wanting to increasingly see get traction in our church is service of each other. Uh, that, That we are called to do that even in passages like this, not just to worship together, not just to fellowship together around the word, but we are to serve each other. Or to take the gifts and the opportunities and the skills and the time and the energy that God's given to us, and we are to serve one another. And so we are continually forming new teams the last few months of ministry teams, ones where people can get their hands dirty, and there's going to be more and more opportunities. There's even an opportunity today uh, to sign up to help at our harvest dinner that we're having as an outreach a few weekends from now, that we want to be people who are looking for opportunities to serve fellow Christians, looking for opportunities in small ways, are big ways to invest in one another, to share our energies, to use our time to benefit one another. And so I would encourage you, commend to you, if you do not have a domain in which you serve in the life of the church, seek to find one. I'd be glad to talk to you. Any of the pastors or staff would be glad to talk to you. We have lists on our website. We're, we're finding avenues more and more to make these needs known to you. But find a place to serve, to get your hands dirty. So Christ gave us a picture here of cleansing that we're to receive, and he gave an example of service we're supposed to give. But in closing, I wanted to state this, that we dare not inverse the order of these things. That we need to be people who first are humble before Christ and receive the cleansing that he gives to us before we seek to serve other people, before we seek to find, try to draw on the humility to selflessly serve others. 
There are many Christians that will just tell you, or many religions that will teach you to just be selfless, matter-of-factly. Like, this is just the right thing to do, is to serve other people, to give of yourself, to do sometimes really hard or even disgusting things to serve other people. Most religions will teach you that. But what most religions, what all religions will not give you is a God who did that for you. A God who left heaven, left the throne of heaven and came into this earth and humbled himself and quite literally got dirty in his mother's womb and being born and then living in probably some dusty house with Joseph with making things and then who ultimately bled and died upon a cross for your sin. Like that is the humble God that has come and served you and made you clean. And he is the one that we are to turn to to find motivation when it's hard for us to serve other people. When we think, this is hard, this is gross, I don't want to do this, I'd rather be just sitting on my couch watching football or out running by myself or going on a vacation or whatever. Like, this is hard for me to do. Look to Christ as your example, the one who has made you clean and served you and find motivation in him to serve others and to keep being motivated over and over and over to keep pouring yourself out and serving people, serving fellow Christians selfishly. Because if you don't do that, you're going to become bitter. You're going to become disillusioned. You're going to become frustrated when the people you have sacrificed to serve turn on you or take you for granted. But if you are drawing upon Christ and what he has done for you, you will be filled up over and over and over again to serve others. I want to end with this quote, and then I'm going to invite the worship team to lead us in a closing song. This is from St. Augustine. I think we have this quote. Could you pull up the next quote, Marcos, or somebody that's back there? Uh, this is a quote from St. Augustine that, where he's going to talk about um, the Lord Jesus and the humility that he demonstrated in his life. I want to read this for you. He wrote this, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, is both a manifestation of divine love in us and an example of human humility among us, so that our great pride might be healed by an even greater contrary medicine. And the next slide is mostly what I wanted you to see. I love this, the way he said this. For a proud man is a great misery, but a humble God is a great mercy. And we are all prideful people left to ourselves who don't want to humbly relate to him and who don't want to humbly relate to each other in serving others. But we have... Uh, Even as proud men and women, we have a humble God, a humble Savior who came to us to save us, to clean us up, and then to commission us, like the end of that passage, to go out and serve others. And so we have a humble God to feel our humility ourselves.